What I'd like to explore uh, this evening is the whole, well, some of the whole area Oh. <laughs> hey, the night is young. <laughs> Some are hilarious. Of, of um, <laughs> investigation and inquiry, and what that means to us, and what it means to us in practice and as practitioners. And in a way, I'm, I'm picking up themes that I've already actually already started in the opening talk and, and through, through other talks and, and in the practice, in the instructions, etc. So what might this mean? Investigation, in, inquiry. Uh, well, the first piece is, is to realize that there are many types, many ways of investigating, uh, many ways of inquiring, many uh, ways that that can be approached and unfold. We could begin with, in some, in some ways, the simplest one, in some ways, right where we started the practice, on the first uh, day of practice. And it's really investigation as intimacy, as intimacy, as the attention, the mindfulness, in a kind way, drawing close to, to touch, to become intimate, to connect with whatever the experience is. And in that, there's a kind of looking, well, what is here? What is this experience? That's so important. It's like, well, what actually is going on? What's the experience right now? And we talked about as well that that can include um, what we might call um, sorry, um, what we might call differentiation. So that oftentimes it seems like there's just a knot of something going on, and one realizes that there is. Strands. There are strands of an, of different emotions, kind of knotted into one uh, thing. And if I don't differentiate, it can often feel like it's bigger than it is and feel overwhelming. When I get closer, I realize, ah, yes, there's anger here, and there's grief, and there's um, a feeling of hurt or whatever it is. There's a sense of differentiating what can look like one thing. And oftentimes emotions do come together in these woven strands. So in this closeness, this intimacy of attention, there is um, the, the, the subtlety of attention, the subtlety of probing and dissecting is not quite the right word, but differentiating. And we talked about in this intimacy, in this no- noticing what else is there. And so oftentimes... Uh, assumptions are coming in, beliefs are coming in, but also resources are here, gifts are here, alongside the very difficulty that I'm trying to explore, and I don't notice them, and I don't open to them, um, because I haven't noticed what else is in the field. I mean, so mindfulness has this breadth to it. It's not uh, totally lost in this singleness. So, investigation is intimacy, that kind of uh, touching of things. There's also, of course, the whole area of questioning, and this is really what I want to get into tonight, questioning. Investigation, inquiry as a questioning, or questioning things. Now, right away, before we get into that, 
let's already differentiate types of questions because there is a kind of questioning that goes on, especially in spiritual circles, that's, what, what could we say? It's supposed not to lead to an answer. In other words, if you get an answer, you've kind of got it wrong. So, for example, some, many of you will be familiar with the question, who am I? And as a, as a meditative question, one, one repeats to oneself, who am I? Who am I? And whatever the mind might throw up as an answer to that is not right. And there's a sense it's not right. It's supposed to uh, issue, to, to lead into openness, not into a crystallized uh, answer that one can kind of summarize. Um, or the question from Korean Zen uh, that some of you will be familiar with. What is this? What is this? This experience is happening. Now, what is this going on? Um, you're not supposed to get an answer to that. It's supposed to actually let go of the kind of rigid conceptualization that often gets us into trouble. So that's one type of questioning. But then there's another type of question that is definitely supposed to uh, arrive at answers, arrive at insights, conclusions, connections. And we're probing, looking for that. Looking, ah, now I understand something. Now I've seen, this is connected to that and it makes a difference in my life. Or when I look at it this way, this is what happens. And so the original Buddha of the Pali Canon, this was his style, this was his mode. He was very uh, uh, interested in questioning and, and the responses of those questions. And in fact, the most, what could we say, the most comprehensive and complete report that he gave of the night of his awakening was exactly that. It was a description of questions and answers, particularly aimed in one direction. Just like, I want to understand where the suffering comes from. And he said, so there's suffering, there's death and there's suffering. Where does that come from? And he got an answer. And then he takes that answer and says, well, where does that come from? That thing. And then he traces it back and back, probing, probing, digging. digging. For, he's looking for an answer. And really what the inquiry into is, is wanting to understand, and this is our inquiry too, as, as Dharma practitioners, understand how suffering gets constructed and held in place and locked in place. That's the in, if you like, one of the golden questions, if not the golden question. How does this dissatisfaction, this dis-ease, get constructed? How is it getting constructed? My mind is involved, there's no blame in that. How is the mind constructing suffering and locking it into place? Uh, and actually more than that, how is the mind, as we touched on last night, how is the mind constructing experience? And solidifying experience. So it's both suffering and experience. And that is the central uh, thrust of Dharma practice and the central question in, in Dharma practice, if you like. And this was what uh, the Buddha was probing on the night of his awakening. So as Chris talked uh, near the beginning of the retreat about the Four Noble, well, the four noble Truths and that the, there is suffering and then there's a cause for suffering. And he said, well, the cause for suffering is clinging, grasping. That's actually just the shorthand answer. And in, in this more comprehensive description of his awakening, the Buddha didn't stop there. Yet, yes, I see clinging brings suffering, but then the next obvious question is, where does clinging come from? I need to understand something about where grasping and aversion come from. And he traced that back. And where does that come Well, it comes from delusion. What's delusion? Where does delusion come from? How does delusion get built? What is it? How can I undo that? These are all... It doesn't stop. It goes further further until there's something that liberates.
So, within that, if we just differentiate those two kinds of questions and then say, well, what can we inquire into? What kind of questions can we ask in our life and our practice? And we've already touched on this. I can ask about my beliefs and assumptions. And that is absolutely enormous. That's enormous. So right away, beliefs and assumptions about what? Well, it could be, and we've touched on this too, it could be beliefs and assumptions about practice. So very easily, um, how easily the relationship with practice is about getting it right. And when it's about getting it right, there's only one question, is that, am I, am I getting it right? And it's not alive with questioning. It's actually limited by that one question, which isn't even really a question. Um, can we give ourselves this permission to experiment? Then, then that experiment, that's what experimentation is, isn't it? It's an inquiry, it's an investigation, it's alive, that's playful. Can I give myself that permission as a practitioner? And, and what that needs, I need to have a sense of possibility that, that it's possible for me to discover something. It's possible for me to discover these bigger principles about understanding suffering, about where freedom comes from. That's possible for little old me to whatever degree, and I can go deeper in it. And that I might discover um, these principles and the, just little tricks. Someone was saying earlier, you know, about the, the body posture. And just a little trick I might notice, oh, I don't have to keep yanking it into place. I can actually just feel a kind of current of energy, uh, vertical axis of energy, and oh, lo and behold, the posture opens and uprights, and I'm not even doing that. Well, that's just a little trick, but it's really helpful. But you can discover that and experiment with that. And there's almost every day one can discover, that's actually quite a big one, but one can discover little things. The spirit of discovery, of inquiry, of experimentation, so important. Because out of that, out, if that spirit can be there, if we can support that spirit, then, then there is interest in practice. And there is energy. Energy comes into, into the being, into the cells, into the body, into the practice, into the mind, into the awareness. And concentration comes actually from the interest. And the interest came from the permission to experiment and the sense of possibility there. And then, of course, there's beliefs and assumptions that we can inquire into about the self, as we've, we've touched on as well. How am I uh, imprisoning myself in a self-view, binding myself in, 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 a, in a tight self-view of who I am and how I am, and, or another? But similarly, as we touched on last night, the world, whether it's the social, political world, the cultural world, or the world of uh, reality. One can inquire also into the whole frameworks with which we are looking at anything. So I'm always looking with a framework. This is really what I want to go into as well tonight. And I can start inquiring into what are the frameworks through which I look. Inquiring even into the framework of the Dharma. And that's what the Dharma is. It's a framework. Questioning. Questioning this framework. And so all that, inquiring into the self, the world, the frameworks, the dharma, these are big, big, bold, it's a big, bold questioning that's going on. And that, that's actually uh, possible for us, but almost 
inviting us. It's there. It's there to be questioned. Albert Einstein said, uh, the important thing is not to stop questioning. Curiosity has its own reason for existing. One cannot help but be in awe when one contemplates the mysteries of eternity, of life, of the marvelous structure of reality. It is enough if one merely tries to comprehend a little bit of this mystery every day. And on another occasion in relationship to this, he said, it's a miracle that curiosity survives formal education. (laughs) I'm aware there are some teachers in here, so I'm also aware that that's changing. (laughs) Chris used to be a teacher. Um... What is our relationship with questioning? What is our relationship with questioning? This, this to me is, is, it's in a way, that's a question, and it's one of the most central questions in life. Out of that question comes almost like my whole life unfolds and is determined partly by that question. And it's not sometimes not even a question we would think of asking, but out of that, everything is either this or that different. What unfolds in my life depends on my relationship with questioning to a huge extent. So sometimes in some spiritual circles, and even a lot of dharma and even insight meditation circles, there's a kind of, what could we say, uh, an encouragement to, you know, a person might describe it different ways, abide in not knowing, or to just trust not knowing, etc. Um, and that can be very beautiful. But the question I have in relationship to that is, is it alive? Because I can abide in not knowing and it's just a kind of uh, slightly dull state, uh, slightly lazy, slightly enclosed. It's lacking the vitality and the opening factor of curiosity. Maybe. I'm not saying maybe. So the question is, if one is practicing not knowing, is it alive? And is it a not knowing with curiosity or is it a not knowing without curiosity? And they're very different. And one might also ask, and this again is a hugely important question to keep asking in, in one's life, what am I not questioning? That's a hard question to answer. What am I not questioning? And yesterday we talked about mysticism and mystical experiences and how easy it is for one side or the other not to get to a certain point and not question. And for people who have very deep mystical experiences um, can be, say, with... Uh, the silence or, or whatever, that um, one just takes that as the final, that's it. And it seems to uh, marry with texts one's read, but that's it. It's not, it's not being probed and pushed at the edges. And so there's a kind of stagnation, and one has no idea that, that there's a stagnation going on. Sometimes uh, I'm with someone or there's a group going on or, or, or someone's just sharing something and, and, and a person says something like, why do I always... Uh, whatever it is. And, and you can actually hear that there's, there's, it sounds like a question because it's got the word why in. But it's not a question at all. What it is is a judgment and a statement of frustration, but and a judgment, a self-judgment. But it sounds, it's dressed up as a question. There's actually no questioning. I always, why do I always, there's, there's not a question there. It's not a real question. 
So as always with all these themes, it's like, what is it that blocks my questioning? What is it that might prevent my questioning? Well, one factor is our old uh, enemy, if you like, the, the should, the should. And where there's should, it's almost like there's not the possibility of inquiry. I should this, I should that, I shouldn't this, I shouldn't that. It's just shutting down the inquiry. It's just shutting down the questioning and the investigation. It's not possible then. So then, it, you know, what that suggests is, can I begin to notice the shoulds that are buzzing and ricocheting around my mind? And they're all kinds of shoulds. And sometimes they're very hidden. Sometimes you hear the mind say, you should or I should or you shouldn't, you ought, da da da, whatever. But oftentimes they're hidden, they're not even verbal. Person uh, was describing a practice. Um, there was two different practices that they were practicing, and they didn't let themselves do the easier one at a certain time. And there was nothing. There was no thinking going on. But they realized, well, well, why not? It was because they shouldn't do what's easy and what feels good. That's that's wrong. But it took them a while to see that there was a should stuck in there, operating, forcing things. And of course, sometimes we are so we have so much uh, dukkha, so much contraction and pain around the whole self view, and the idea of what's that this self that needs measuring up, that needs because of uh, the way society is, we're always needing to measure up and show ourselves, and and social anxiety, etc. That that actually completely contracts the ability to question. Sometimes I think if I if I think back on my uh, time at, at college and university you know, when I was a teenager into early 20s and I, and I think about university kids now it's like so much pressure on this identity presentation and, and the statement of identity that we were talking about some talks ago and then all these um, uh, youngsters are, 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 are thrown together meeting new people in an environment where they're supposed to be exploring and inquiring and, but so much of it comes a, is uh, contracted in this pain about what am I presenting and am I good enough and do I fit in? And that's just strangling uh, the possibility of, of inquiry and exploration to new territories. So if all that is the case, or to the degree all that is the case, the shoulds have the stranglehold, we're worried about, continually worried about the self-view and, and how I present and all that, um, Sometimes any talk about uh, inquiry or ideas, it sounds awfully abstract. It sounds like it doesn't have anything to do with me because one's only seeing in this little, in this little tiny orbit and, and uh, one's almost staring at oneself in, in a way without the inquiry and doesn't, uh, the inquiry doesn't open out. But there's, it's almost like it might be actually necessary to push it much wider and take the vision say, lift up mine eyes to the hills, lift up the eyes, the vision, the questioning beyond what's immediately problematic. I think, well, this is where the suffering is. I can't think about all these abstract questions, you know, because right here I'm in this pain with whatever. But actually it's part of the contraction. It's part of this uh, satellite being, being stuck in the orbit by the gravitational pull of the self and the self view. 
Because if I let myself push out with questions, push out wide with the questioning, maybe that brings interest and and, uh, it certainly brings vitality and dynamism. And it will also bring turbulence. It brings a kind of agitation to ask bold, big questions. But with that, including the turbulence, dynamism, vitality, interest, turbulence, actually what might happen is this contracted suffering gets less. It's not a distraction. It actually is a a helpful opening out. It takes away the unhelpful uh, centrifugal force of what's going on. Brings energy, as I said. uh, Decreases the self-obsession. Increases understanding. Increases the openness of the consciousness. So when we question... If you think about what a question is, there's a kind of penetrative movement to the question. We're penetrating something, and we're also expanding. So questioning has both those qualities, penetrative and expanding. And both those bring energy, and we need energy. Because when we're stuck in an orbit of suffering, all the energy is wrapped up in that orbit. We don't have enough energy to kind of get out of the orbit. And it's interesting, you know, to look at what kind of questions do I not ask, as I was saying. And so, for example, sometimes, very often, people uh, don't ask about this idea of liberation or freedom. Oftentimes that's because of the inner critic and the idea that what could that possibly have to do with me? I'm so uh, hopeless, I'm such a failure, I'm so diminished in my capabilities, I'm not worthy, etc. And what happens is, is... I couldn't even entertain the possibility of asking, what does freedom mean? Maybe it's possible for me. Uh, what would it involve? What does it involve? Wouldn't even dare to ask such questions just because of the grip of the inner critic. Or around the whole notion of freedom or liberation, a whole bunch of, and the path to it, a whole bunch of assumptions uh, come in very easily and, and again sometimes hidden. And sometimes you might hear something like, um, liberation comes from being where you are, or something like that. And it sounds really nice and it's kind of comforting, but is it true? I mean, the Buddha never said that, but is it true? Or in the way that I'm thinking about the path to liberation, if I'm thinking that way, do I keep gravitating to certain factors like mindfulness and awareness and missing other factors? Because the Buddha painted a whole picture of what was involved in the path. And we tend to emphasize some and kind of ignore others. So I... Is it a... it would sound a strange question to ask oneself, but why need it be a strange question? Why am I not free yet? But it's really a why. Again, it's not a judgment. It's why am I not free yet? Meaning, what's going on here? What needs to go on? So with all this, it's like, you know, am I bringing enough intensity to, actually intensity and freedom to the questioning? So all this, because of all the assumptions and because of all the blocks and everything, it's like it needs a lot of intensity and this, this sense of being free to question. Being uh, there's, there's a space to move and to approach things from different angles. Am I bringing enough intensity and freedom to questioning in my life? And 
this is interesting, but one is so easy for us as human beings to get into a state of quite a lot of intensity about stuff that, that actually deep down we feel is quite petty and not that important. And then it's like we have not enough intensity or energy left over for the really deep and important questions. We've kind of used up our quota. But questioning in life maybe is an expression, is a manifestation of freedom. There's this, it's showing that I'm not so locked in or in the blind grip. When I dare to question something, I'm already elbowing enough room. I'm already asserting some freedom to dare to question. It's already a manifestation of freedom. And the more I do it, it's like it's bringing freedom just by daring to question. So partly what I want to go into tonight is, is with all this, is we've been talking a lot about emotions and heart work and stuff like that. And what, the, what is the relevance of ideas to all of that heart stuff and emotions? Uh, now, when I say ideas, I don't mean like a plan, or I've got an idea, I'm going to, um, I've got this problem, and so I'll fix it this way, some kind of practical solution to something. I don't mean that. I mean concepts and frameworks, ways of looking. Um, so, something like, uh, for instance, the unconscious. It's an idea. It's a, it can be a very helpful idea that there is this unconscious that throws up certain things, and that's an idea, and it frames the way I look at my experience and the way I consider things. Uh, the, the idea that um, what happened to me in childhood uh, you know, gets lodged somewhere and influences my, my future choices and behavior and feelings, that's also an idea. Again, very helpful, but it's an idea. How much of the emotion we feel in life is because something we've given meaning to something? Do you understand? I feel an emotion about this or that because somehow, somewhere in the mind, this thing that I'm feeling emotion about has been given meaning. Um, I I love football. I really love, I mean, really good football, you know. Um, And, you know, but there are some, there are some, mostly guys, who the only time they shed tears is at a football match. Which is interesting. Something's been given meaning somehow. Or, uh, and this is quite common nowadays, it's like a person can feel a lot of empathy for someone else telling them about, say, what happened to them in their childhood and the pain that came out of that. But when they hear about, say, the suffering somewhere else through what's happening, say, with climate change, which we touched on, it doesn't seem to... It doesn't seem to resonate in any way. They can't really empathize with the suffering. And it's partly through the constellation of certain ideas and the emphasis given to certain ideas over time in the psyche, in the mind, that kind of prime those ideas um, to, to make certain emotions more likely and more, more full, more active. Do, do you understand? So ideas, actually, whether we like it or not, ideas are part of what give rise to emotions. Emotions are partly dependent on ideas, and we, we don't usually think that. So sometimes you, you know, you might, it's very tempting to think, well, just trust your feelings and don't think about them. But actually, the feelings we have are 
completely woven into a whole web of influences and ideas, um, uh, the whole zeitgeist, the whole sort of culture of the times, as we were talking about, that's conditioned by history. And we tend, we don't kind of like that thought. That somehow there's this whole cultural conditioning and history, and it gives rise to certain ideas that I have, and that gives rise to, I mean, we'd prefer to think of the heart as a kind of pure, something pure and given. So ideas give rise to emotion, but ideas also give rise to experience, or any kind of experience, uh, to a certain extent. So ideas about myself, about what's important, ideas about myself give rise to the kind of self I experience, and then the kind of world I experience. Ideas about what's important in existence, in life, uh, direct my vision and my perception and certain things stand out, and I live in a different world dependent on what I consider important. Or ideas about what happens in childhood, that's, you know, uh, ideas about practice, ideas about the goal of practice, ideas about reality. So the idea that ideas are something abstract, that all this talk of ideas is something kind of abstract, if it's, if it's feeling like this is all a bit abstract right now, I hope, I hope you can see that it's really not. It's really not. Ideas have enormous influence and power in our lives. In a way, uh, the set of ideas that we are embedded in and constrained by and addicted to, it will keep delivering the same emotions. It will keep delivering in our life the same range of experiences because of that set of ideas. So we talk about a person being open and such and such, there's a real, they're real open. Uh, but what does it mean? To me, it actually means open-hearted, open to feeling emotions. We've been working a lot on that this week. But it also means open, uh, so to speak, ideationally, open to ideas. And sometimes uh, it's quite common that a person is very soft, they're very soft-hearted, they're very open um, in, in a whole certain range of emotions. And they never, they don't appear dogmatic at all. They're not at all polemic. They don't enter into any battle over ideas with anyone. But actually, they're stuck, if we, if we use strong language, stuck in a whole range uh, of, of a set of ideas. But because wouldn't even consider it, uh, it's not realized. It's not acknowledged. And so is it really open? If I don't actually... Uh, probe and explore and dig up what's going on in terms of the ideation. And similarly, in, in kind of meditation practice, etc., we we might easily assume, very understandably, that it's experiences that bring freedom, and a certain experience in meditation or whatever it is that will unfold uh, and allow open new experiences. But is that the case? Is it that one has an experience and that leads to an opening of new experience? I mean, it is, it is true, that does happen. But very easily an experience can lead to actually uh, fixed views constellating around that experience, interpretation of this or that or self or the world or reality, and clinging to those views and it actually blocks the unfolding of further experience. It blocks a kind of freedom. And the thing about ideas is it's possible, or, or 
churning, wrestling with ideas. The thing about that is it, it, it can have the capacity to break cages as well, as well as experiences, as well as uh, other stuff. Um, but with that, there's a kind of restlessness. With the wrestling with ideas and the willingness to take on new ideas and explore and question, there comes into the being a kind of restlessness. But that's, that's the kind of kinetic energy one might need to break the cages that one might not even realize are there. So as I said before, <clears throat> when we talk about ideas, we're talking about ways of seeing. They're, it's not like a plan for the future. It's a, it's a way of seeing. It might be hidden or it might be explicit. So, for instance, and I touched on this last night, the idea of um, this moment just as it is. This moment just It sounds so innocuous and light and without ideation. It's loaded with ideation. The idea of something just as it is is loaded with, with assumption and concept, as we touched on. Or the idea that I need to integrate parts of my being. Sounds great. Here I am, I feel all these diverse bits and pulls, and I need to integrate. And I mean, maybe that's true, maybe it's not, but it's an idea. It's a way of seeing then what I experience in my life. And as we said right from the opening talk, the Dharma is, is, is a set of ideas in a way. And it takes time to digest that set of ideas and to kind of consolidate it. But, I think we need the input of new ideas. There's something about like taking on new ideas uh, through listening, through uh, reading, through talking with friends and others and through questioning. Because that can unlock a kind of deep uh, dynamism, a quality in the being. Not just up here, in the whole being, in the vitality, in the, in, in the blood, in, in the heart, in everything. James Hillman, that psychologist that I mentioned uh, in one of the other talks, the craving for new ideas and for intellectual skills to deal with the constraining effects of unthought ideas is a deep hunger in the American soul. He's living in America. Thus I have found in my itinerant teaching private consultations and retreats, uh, particularly with men throughout the country. Relationships may comfort Support groups nourish and success enhance, but ideas empower the spirit and open its eyes to envisioning possibilities. I do not want to believe that we are essentially a people obsessed with security, nor that we are a people enslaved to consumerism, enchanted by the media, entertainment and celebrity, dependent on relationships, or that we are a narcissistic society in love with its own childhood to the utter denial of our national tragedies, unable to imagine a meaningful future. These diagnoses observe symptoms only without getting to the fundamental (coughs) syndrome of which the symptoms are but fluctuating and fashionable manifestations. And then he says, the deeper syndrome is inertia of the spirit a passivity that feels no vocation and shies from imaginative vision, adventurous thinking, and intellectual clarification. So I wonder how all this is going down, because we don't tend to think of this when, when we think of the Dharma. We don't, it's kind of like we put it aside. Now all that, everything that I've said so far, given all the blocks, given the importance of it, given what, how I constra- am constrained and constrain myself, 
it needs a lot of passion. It's like somehow passion needs to come in into the relationship with ideas, which is a heart. The heart needs to come in. So if we think about, if you know the life of the Buddha, uh, in in modern psychological terms, he he would probably be considered a a complete obsessive. This guy had a real problem. He he was very off balance and kind of obsessed with one issue in a a very unhealthy way. (laughs) Starving himself and repeatedly asking certain questions and <laughs> Ramana Maharshi had, had something he said, a famous um, teacher in, in, the, in the Hindu tradition said, you, you, uh, you should desire liberation like a drowning man desires air. You need to desire liberation like a drowning man desires air. There's immense passion there, immense desire. Dogen, I don't, I can't remember. Dogen is a, the founder of the Soto Zen school, if I remember rightly. And he was practicing in Japan. And he had this one question. I can't remember what it was, but it's quite an odd question. You, you think, well, that doesn't even seem right, but it was burning for him. And so he sailed all the way to China, which in, the, in those days was a big deal. I was talking about that, you know, a long time ago. Um, with this question, this burning questioning, this passion of inquiry, and all that, that passion brings energy as well. It takes energy, but it brings energy. And we need to tolerate all this, tolerate all this uh, agitation and passion. So there's a famous uh, quote, I can't remember the exact quote, it was something Picasso said about Cezanne. And, and he said, he was saying, you know, basically, like a lot of artists that came before me don't really interest me, but Cezanne, he really interests me, Paul Cezanne, he really interests me. And the quote is usually translated something like, because in those uh, pictures of the apples, there's anxiety in those apples. And it's translated, and I used to read this, what on earth does he mean, anxiety? And then some people I've heard use, use that to mean, it's like there's existential anxiety about the meaninglessness of life, of life being expressed in the apples somehow. Um, actually, you could ask, Who's French? Loic, Loic, you're French, right? L'inquietude? Disquiet? Yeah, okay. Okay. So, worry? Worry, Worry. yeah, okay. So, this was the word, for some reason, Picasso was speaking in French at that point. And uh, (laughs) we don't need to inquire into that. So that was the word he used, and it's often translated as anxiety. And then I read recently a much better translation, it makes much more sense to me, restless striving. Restless striving. That in his painting, Cezanne was restless in his striving to present something in, in, in what he saw. And if you remember in the instructions, I was saying about how he just looked and looked and looked from this angle and that angle. And there's this restlessness about wanting to see deeper and wanting to find a way to... Uh, transfer that through the art and to, to express that through the art. And that's what Picasso loved. It wasn't anything about uh, uh, nihilistic uh, existential anxiety. But that's something we need to tolerate because that's restless, restless striving feels restless. It doesn't feel settled. It feels uncomfortable. So somehow I have to tolerate that energy. Einstein again. 
you know, he's asked, well, how did you come up with all this stuff? You know, amazing, amazing breakthroughs in, in conception and d- discovery and just such bold thinking. And he said, you know, it's not that I'm so smart. It's just that I stay with problems longer. It's just that I stay with problems. Again, obsessed, patient and obsessed with this thing that he wanted to understand. Ah. Werner Heisenberg, this really touches me. Werner Heisenberg was that one of the physicists I was mentioning in the, in the quantum revolution. And he says in, in uh, um, one of his books, Physics and Philosophy, he says, I remember discussions with Bohr, Niels Bohr, in 1927. I remember discussions with Bohr which went through many hours till very late at night and ended almost in despair. And when, at the end of the discussion, I went alone for a walk in the neighboring park, I repeated to myself again and again the question, can nature possibly be as absurd as it seemed to us in these atomic experiments? Did you hear this? It's, you know, it's getting up early the next morning to go to the laboratory and there's just this, this passion to question. So what is it? The culture, the inner critic the habit of not questioning, the way we're taught, uh, all this can block the passion. It blocks the passion of inquiry. But we need that pa- passion because we're up against kind of formidable forces, formidable blocks, actually. Uh, prejudice is one of them. We have prejudice. We touched on this yesterday with the, uh, the talk about mysticism. All kinds of prejudices. Paul Dirac, another... A physicist, uh, actually an English physicist, um, very central in in the whole quantum uh, uh, explorations. He said, great breakthroughs in physics always involve giving up some great prejudice or assumption. Great breakthroughs always involve giving up some great prejudice or great assumption. And it's interesting actually with Einstein because he really struggled with the implications uh, of what quantum theory was saying he really and this young radical later in life became a sort of old fuddy-duddy conservative that people kind of sidelined because he he couldn't go there into the new conception it was too much for him but Dirac also who actually said that as he got older and he was very fixated on any any theory must be mathematically beautiful and it's like well that's just a, a prejudice and then when he had a mathematically beautiful theory and the experiment didn't agree with it, it so grudgingly <laughs> to go along, Einstein as well, to go along with what the experimental evidence was. And I'm talking about physics just because it's... It, uh, well, partly because it's at the forefront of inquiry in a lot of ways. Um, or it has been. It has been. Uh, and partly because it's a thread through the talk. So... The initial quantum uh, discoveries was something that this guy Max Planck discovered. And he intuited, this is really going to cause a problem. And he didn't want to share it. He, didn't, he, he hated the implications of it. And apparently, no one, not even Planck, who discovered the original sort of really puzzling phenomena that uh, prompted the, the quantum revolution, no one wanted to accept the implications of what this meant, of the things that we've touched on about the way the observation not being separate, the thing not being separate. No one wanted to go near that. This is Heisenberg again. He was perhaps one of the 
the really the boldest thinkers, the most daring of, of all of them. So when new groups of phenomena compel changes in the pattern of thought, even the most eminent of physicists find immense difficulties. For the di- so you can translate all this for what it means, you know, obviously we're not physicists here, but you can translate this to what it means about my Dharma practice and the way I am in relationship to life, my assumptions, my etc. For the demand for change in the thought pattern may engender the feeling that the ground is to be pulled from under one's feet. I believe that the difficulties at this point can hardly be overestimated. Once one has experienced the desperation with which clever and conciliatory men of science react to the demand for a change in the thought pattern, one can only be amazed that such revolutions in science have actually been possible at all. (laughs) And so, is this true for the Dharma and my practice? Yes. And we touched on that last night. I'm interpreting, I have a prejudice, I have a predisposition, I pre-decide stuff. Can I realize that's going on and can I question it? It's, it, it's, it seems, may seem, I don't know, I hope it doesn't seem abstract. To me it's absolutely central. And of course, another why it needs so much pattern is because in life, in all kinds of ways, we like to be in a comfort zone. We like comfort as human beings and we need a certain degree of comfort. We can't be you know, shaken up all the time. We need a comfort zone. Another physicist, Enrico Fermi, Never underestimate, never underestimate the pleasure people get from hearing something they already know. <laughs> That's really true. And a funny thing, you know, I started to cotton on to something like giving Dharma talks and, and just meeting people in interviews. And sometimes a person comes to me and they say about a talk that I gave or about a talk they listened to of someone else. Great talk, fantastic talk. You know, I really love that talk. And sometimes they go on to explain why they loved it. And not always, but oftentimes, basically they end up saying something like, it really affirmed what I was already thinking. (laughs) It's like coming in and listening because I want someone to tell me what, what already... What's going on there? And it's so common. Uh, in the Tibetan tradition it says a scholar so it's a very scholastic tradition some of it a scholar an inquirer who cherishes his comfort zone is not fit to be deemed a scholar an inquirer uh, Jung Carl Jung we wish to make our lives simple certain and smooth we want certainties and no doubts results and no experiments without even seeing that certainties can arise only through doubt and results only through experiment. So we want what's comfortable. You know, it's, it's very normal, very human, but, but it, it uh, closes us in, it imprisons us, it dampens our passion. This, re- this desire for simplicity, I think, also ver- runs very deep in Dharma circles and spiritual circles. And actually, recently I've come to call it simplism. We love a simple explanation. We love a simple version of truth. We love the simple. And so a truth, if you want to give it a capital, truth must be simple. Well, why must it be simple? Maybe it's not simple. Maybe the truth of the situation, maybe the ultimate, you know, maybe it's not simple. I want it to be. But maybe that's just a predisposition, an inclination, a wanting of comfort. And if we think again about physics, 
you know, there's the, this, what feels simple to us because it's intuitive is the Newtonian, the old model. And quantum mechanics and all that and relativity feels extremely complex. But it's more true, if you say. And in fact, in relation to this, Einstein said, everything should be as simple as it can be, but not simpler. Not simpler. So when do we have a tendency to oversimplify just because we like simplicity and it sounds good and it's easy to communicate and it's easy to understand and it feels comforting? Um, James Hillman again. The seduction of simplicity tempts ever more as issues become more and more complex so that voices of simplicity, and he names a couple of American politicians, um, offer mental peace without mental effort. Simple ideas feel comfortable. They don't give trouble. They seem to let issues settle down quietly into the bottom mud of the mind, all tension and sophistication denied. A simple idea of whatever it is lulls us into quiescent passivity. The mind and the soul needs need richer foods and it likes to move subtly like a snake or a fox. Otherwise it will get blindsided by the narrowness of focus. Then he says, I am inviting disturbance. And some of this has to do with cultural influences uh, from Zen into the Dharma in the West, etc. And because we have oftentimes such a problematic relationship with thought and too much up in our heads, we tend to dismiss the whole realm of ideation. But as always, maybe that's good to a certain extent, but it will have consequences. So to be aware, what happens with ideas and new ideas? Do I try and fit them into a framework, into a conceptuality that I already have? Oftentimes I do. I can't actually hear the newness in something and be opened up and challenged because I'm actually trying to mould it to the old framework I have. So I don't, nothing gets shifted or broken out of, out of this structure. Uh, Arthur Lovejoy talked about being sensitive to the metaphysical pathos of an idea. What that means is which ideas resonate with the heart and through their resonating with the heart, which might be completely culturally conditioned, they're given, uh, you know, I gravitate towards them, I like them. Truth. Unity. Integration. Clarity. What is natural. These are all ideas, but they, they have a, an emotional resonance that's dependent on all kinds of other stuff. Am I aware of that? So in regard to awakening, for instance, sometimes uh, one one very popular way of feeling uh, attracted to a certain idea of what awakening is, is is it has to be spontaneous, and it has to be, you realize something you can't express. But that's a whole ideation right there that has this metaphysical pathos, this way that I feel about it that's predisposing me. What about the opposite? Maybe it comes out of study, and it is something I can express. But for most of us, that wouldn't have the same, the same feeling tone to it. What's the predisposition? We talked about this. Uh, this is from Nietzsche. It has gradually become clear to me what every great philosophy has hitherto been. 
a confession on the part of its author and a kind of involuntary and unconscious memoir. Moreover, that the moral or immoral intentions in every philosophy have every time constituted the real germ, the real seed of life out of which the entire plant has grown. This whole way of looking, this whole framework, this whole philosophy which appears to be about truth is actually coming out of a certain heart inclination one way or another for what I want to feel. To explain about life, to explain how a philosopher's most remote metaphysical assertions have actually been arrived at, it is always well and wise to ask oneself first, what morality does this philosophy or does he or she aim at? I, accordingly, do not believe a drive to knowledge, to truth, to be the father of philosophy, but that another drive has, here as elsewhere, only employed knowledge and even false knowledge as a tool. This is quite an extreme example, but it's a story. What happens when we, when we want to cling to a, a way of seeing or a view? Or in the early 1950s, a woman in Minneapolis began to receive communications from an extraterrestrial being named Sananda. Marion Keach, as she was pseudonymously known, heard that a great flood would cleanse the world of earthlings at midnight on 21st December 1954. Only those who believed in Sananda would be saved. They would be taken to another planet in a spaceship that would arrive just before the flood. A cult formed around Mrs. Keach. Apart from a single press release, it shunned publicity. Members quit their jobs, sold their houses and left their families. On the Day of Judgment, they gathered in Keech's house to await the arrival of the spaceship. The media gathered on the front lawn. The clock ticked down to midnight, but neither the spaceship nor the flood arrived. Inside the house, some cult members wept. Others stared at the ceiling. The cult had been infiltrated by a young psychologist, Leon Festinger, who was intrigued by how the members would accommodate the prophecy's failure. As it dawned on them that the world would not be ending that night, how would they react? The rational response would be to face up to the truth that they had been duped and sink into deep despondency because they had made enormous sacrifices for nothing. In fact, the opposite occurred. The cult members became excited, throwing open the curtains and inviting the television cameras in. They were told that Marion Keach had just received an urgent message from a high-density being telling her that the world had been spared the flood because the group had spread so much light that God had saved the world from destruction. (laughs) Fair enough. Over the next days, Keach and other cult members told as many media outlets as they could that their devotion was not in vain, for through it they had saved the world. These counterintuitive events stimulated Festinger to develop the theory of cognitive dissonance, which describes the uncomfortable feeling we have when we begin to understand that something we believe to be true is contradicted by evidence. And he hypothesized that those who firmly held belief views, who, sorry, that whose, those whose firmly held views are repudiated by the emergence of facts often begin to proselytize, to preach, even more fervently after the facts become incontrovertible. He wrote that we spend our lives paying attention to information that is consonant with our beliefs and avoiding that which is not. What am I seeking out when I inquire? We surround ourselves with people who think as we do and avoid those who make us feel uncomfortable. This is tricky because we need support too. 
So all this stuff with ideas, it, it needs a kind of friction from the passion. It needs the rub and the sparks, you know. Um, John Wheeler, that physicist I mentioned, he said, progress in science owes more to the clash of ideas than the steady accumulation of facts. Um, also true with uh, Buddhism in India was very polemic and lots of debate, as it is in Tibet as well. The teachers that have uh, perhaps had the biggest influence on, on me and my practice and uh, have been highly polemic. It's quite interesting. I'd only realized that the other day. Uh, teachers th- throughout history, uh, not, not alive as well. <clears throat> Richard Feynman, a Nobel Prize physicist as well, says, science is the organized skepticism in the reliability of expert opinion. And Lee Smolin, another physicist, the scientific community works in part by harnessing the arrogance and ambition we each in some degree bring to the search. So it takes a certain arrogance to ask questions in a way. All this, not easy to tolerate. Um, When I don't understand completely something I'm reading or something, it feels uncomfortable, it feels agitating. There's a discomfort there. Apparently, I think it was Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. The unexamined life is not worth living. And then there was someone else, much later in history, called someone or other Duffy. And he said, yeah, but remember, the examined life is no bed of roses either. (laughs) (laughs) So I was thinking, three areas of human endeavor Science, religion, and art. And in science, there's a sense of open-endedness to the inquiry. It is assumed that at some point we will outgrow even quantum theory, and that will move on. So it's like we're moving into an open-ended future, improving. There's a sense of improving something, moving towards a kind of open... It's an open-ended search for truth, theoretically. Uh, religion oftentimes is the opposite and even in the Dharma we tend to think actually really what we're trying to do is replicate the Buddha's insights old so instead of um, Im- improvement there's, there's, as history goes on there's the idea well it's getting degenerated uh, there's a loss there's impurity coming in do you understand? and then you think about art I don't think anyone really, you know, who taken seriously would say Picasso is better or worse than Michelangelo. It's just different. There's an, a development, and evolution is just different. So to me, that's quite interesting. And why does it have to be that way? Why does the Dharma have to be that way? Why does our relationship with the Dharma have to be that way? So this. All this might make sense to those of you who have been practicing quite a while and may not realize that there's a certain way of looking at the Dharma. We're trying to repeat the Buddha's insights. Why not this sense of openness of discovery, an open-ended search for truth, also in spiritual matters in the Dharma? Or the sense that there's actually just different ways of developing So some people, you know, the assumptions, there's no new real insights or ideas in the Dharma, maybe new ways of going about things, but not really new insights. Is that really true? And why should it be true? 
What are my allegiances and what are the social pressures operating on me in my inquiry or non-inquiry? And that actually even goes into science. There's a very famous, but I haven't read it, I've only heard about it, by a guy called Thomas Kuhn. It's called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And why it was such a, uh, caused such a stir was he's saying, actually, there's a lot of sociological uh, influences in scientific communities that actually uh, very strongly influence uh, the the breakthrough of theories and, and things like that. And if you know the history of the the dharmas moved to Tibet for hundreds of years. Um, a lot of which ideas became prominent, how the evolution of the understanding and the teaching in Tibetan uh, was to do a lot with the feudal land system and which uh, landlords were supporting which monasteries and, and the, the um, competition for land and power. It's quite interesting. Allegiances, social pressures, frameworks and assumptions, again, again. Uh, the idea of um, you know, assumptions influencing what I experience and what I will actually notice. If I grow up in a, in a culture where I believe in original sin, that's what I'm taught, that I'm bad, uh, I was born with this original sin, what an effect that has on what one observes and how one inquires or not, or what it limits, what a very strong effect that can have. Actually, there's quite a similar idea in Buddhist teaching of the three kilesas, the three defilements. We are born into this world because we are full of greed, hatred, aversion. Uh, greed, hatred, delusion, excuse me. The difference is that in, in Buddhism, the Invitation is not to take that as who you are or as ultimately real. So there's, there's some more space around it. But what is the framework that's influencing what I see? Charles Darwin actually said, without the making of theories, I'm convinced there would be no observation. It's interesting. Um, in... Uh, in France, in, in, 19, uh, no, in 1660... Um, there was a guy who called uh, De La Vial, and he uh, went into a cave that was actually full of prehistoric cave painting, completely full. And because at that time they had no conception of prehistoric man, let alone the idea that prehistoric uh, you know, man, woman, would make uh, uh, paintings on the wall, he completely did not see. And he actually graffitied his name <laughs> next to these pictures of, of bisons and, and things. Because that, it, wasn't, it didn't enter into his conception. There was no theory, so he actually didn't see it. He couldn't bring the, the, the actual pictures into focus. And scientists perhaps don't collect data comprehensively. Same for practitioners. Don't notice what's outside of the framework. I was at a... Are you guys okay for a little bit more, or you had enough? I was at um, a, uh, a dream workshop not too long ago. It was about um, it was actually about lucid dreaming in, in London, and and talking about they were talking about some experiences they had. And what was interesting to me, and and you see the same thing for meditators. You open up to something like the silence or the stillness, or a realm in a dream. And these people in dreams were describing similar realms. And so the conclusion is, ah, this realm really exists and I have discovered it. Uh, rather, or like a vast awareness. 
opening out. And it seems like texts and uh, uh, spiritual texts would support that being ultimately real in what they say. But one isn't questioning in a different way, which is, how did this arise? Going back to what I was saying at the beginning. Rather than taking it as, as a fixed reality that I'm moving into, it's how did this come up in the first place? Because there's a pattern to this experiencing opening, as I was saying yesterday. And, and I throw this out also in relation to last night's talk, I might need to fall in love with that silence. I might need to fall in love with the sense of boundless love and the sense of an awareness that can hold everything and not hurry on into inquiry. Falling in love with it does something to my heart and to my being. And then there's a time to move on. So all this, all this, of course, applies to the Dharma inquiry and the inquiry we have. Where do I usually not go in my questioning? What do I usually not consider? That's a hard question to answer because it's a blind spot. But to can the, the range and the parameters, the directions of my inquiry be expanded? A friend was at a retreat in a slightly different tradition and a big retreat and uh, was getting upset, uh, quite em- emotionally upset that there seemed... Uh, I can't remember exactly what people were leaving lights on and and uh, and things like that and and this there seemed not to be this ecological care there was a complete blindness to the ecological care and was feeling upset by this. this this seems to be the culture here took that to the teacher and said well this is what's going on I feel saddened by this I feel really upset it really does something inside me and the teacher said well um, does that remind you of something with your parents. <laughs> Something's happened to the inquiry. It's got channeled into a certain direction. We're saying, uh, going back to the first talk, on, and we talked about climate change and other things, and I can tend to think that my suffering is my fault, not see that some of the pain comes from outside. And we've also talked about this. Do I tend to go where the difficulty is, where the feeling of pain and weakness is? Another friend was having a lot of difficulty and pain and then had a dream with a lot of energy in it and brightness and creativity and a kind of uh, lovely vision in it. But in waking consciousness and talking even about the dream, the tendency was to go back into the position of pain and want to feel like that's what needs to get explored. And it was almost like the unconscious was throwing up another way of looking. Hey, what about this? What about the creativity? And it's, it's almost like the unconscious needed to compensate by throwing up something more uh, creative, more outward looking. And sometimes with the Dharma, it's... Uh, and especially nowadays, we might not... Re- what does not fit into the Dharma? What doesn't fit into the Dharma framework? So I was talking with someone recently, and she was, she'd fallen in love. It's beautiful, fallen in love. And then uh, was uh, some time went by, and there was, the person was traveling somewhere, and they had separation before he came back. And, and all this longing, and then she came for an interview, and it's like... But I shouldn't crave, right? This craving is a problem. How can I have a romance without craving? (laughs) 
So automatically we have a problem there as lay practitioners. I'm supposed to end craving and yet I want romance. How, how, can, I, how can I have sex without desire? It does, it's not going to be much fun. <laughs> I mean, sex involves... It, it, there's, you know, sometimes the dark gods are in it. Ro, you know, romance, it's like there's a kind of craziness in it when you're in love. It's, there's possession, there's longing, there's all that. So what are the limits of, of the, the Dharma? Try to fit it on. Maybe it doesn't fit. Is the Dharma even applicable in that sense? Is there even one Dharma anymore? We, we talk about the Dharma says this, and in the Dharma it says that. Is there even one? It's so already in Western culture, it's met psychothera- psychotherapies, plural, psychotherapeutic schools, and met that, met, as we're talking about scientific materialism, met different philosophies, met the whole cultural zeitgeist. What is the one Dharma? There's all kinds of um, mixings going on there. We say, sometimes people say, well, we all agree on the Four Noble Truths, but actually there's lots of interpretations of what that means. And Chris spoke about this. What is actually suffering? What What do we mean when we say that? And when we talk about liberation, what do we mean? The original Buddha in the text talks, but it's very clear, liberation means the ending of rebirth, the ending of the cycle of sense, not being born again into this world. Now, if I take that out, if I take that whole notion out and the whole notion of ending that process, what does liberation mean? It's up for grabs. It's up for grabs what that means. And people interpret it in very different ways. Is there even one liberation anymore? Or are there many liberations? A liberation in this direction, a liberation in that direction, a liberation in this area, a liberation in that area? If you've been involved in the Dharma a long time, that might be quite a question to even entertain. And in my inquiry, what do I tend to rely on or trust in my search for the truth? There's a whole other question there. What do I rely on? I'm, I'm searching for the truth, I'm searching for, for to, to penetrate things with inquiry. Do I rely on the data from so-called direct perception, just what I see? Is that what, what feels true to me? Do I rely on logic and logical analysis? What do I give the most authority to? Or do I, re- do I rely on uh, another's authority, like a spiritual authority, teacher saying this, text saying that? Do I rely on mystical experience? Do I rely on an intuition of the truth? So as I'm asking this, what, what's your favorite? What's your stacking of these priorities? Here I am in a relationship with truth. What, what do I tend to trust and rely on? Do I go for a map or no map? And why? Why do I choose a map or not a map? What's going on there inside me in my heart? All this is difficult and is difficult to inquire. In the, um, in the Tibetan tradition, there's a wrathful deity uh, called Yam, uh, Yamantaka. And if you've seen pictures, he's got bull's horns and a bull's head and he's raging and there's fire all around him and he's huge and uh, got fangs. And, um, <coughs> uh, his name, it's interesting, the name it means... Um, 
One who makes an end of death. In other words, one who ends death, the sees through death. But it can also mean, if you translate it from the Sanskrit, it means one whose goal is death, one who brings death. And what does it, it doesn't mean physical death, it could also mean death of the self, but it could also mean death of these kind of structures of ideation that we get used to. I get so used to this, these assumptions and this whole, this whole, these whole frameworks. And then, in a way, metaphorically, he comes along with his power and his wrath, if you like, his energy, and cracks something open. It's actually, it's a blessing. It's a blessing, but it's difficult, and that's why he's wrathful. And that can be for someone who's really inquiring, been in, in the comfort of a framework and the benefit of a framework, whatever it is, and then that cracks. Uh, can be disorienting, frightening, takes courage, takes courage. And someone told me earlier today, courage means uh, having heart, from Kur, having heart. In the Jewish Kabbalah tradition, uh, the mystical Jewish tradition, talk about the breaking of, of the vessels. So we, we create these vessels, we need to. This is the, ves- the vessels of my relationships, the vessels of my ideas, the vessels of um, the structures that I move in, in work and expression. And if we're alive, if we're alive in life, and if our vitality is flowing, they crack. Repeatedly in life, they crack. We need to build them, and they need to crack. And we need to build again, and they need to crack. And that's difficult. It's a difficult process. But it's part of of our life force. Einstein again. Because when they crack, it's not like we dismiss what went before. We dismiss the old vessels. So creating a new theory is not like destroying an old barn and creating a skyscraper in its place. It is rather like climbing a mountain, gaining new and wider views, discovering unexpected connections between one's starting point and its rich environment. But the point from which we started out still exists and can be seen, although it appears smaller and forms a tiny part of our broad view gained by the mastery of the obstacles on our adventurous way up. If there are, if there is not one liberation, if there is not one liberation, if there are many liberations, what then is ideational liberation? What does that mean? And is it something like we usually think of, of liberation as something that has an end? I reach an end, I reach the goal, the end of liberation. Or is it open-ended? Is it open-ended? Kusanus, I don't know, have you, do you know who he is? Some guy called Kusanus. Um, the eye, as a sense organ is neither satiated nor limited by anything visible. It won't be satisfied by anything visible. For the eye can never have too much of seeing. Likewise, intellectual vision is never satisfied with a view of the truth. The striving for the infinite, the inability to stop at anything given or attained, is neither a fault nor a shortcoming of the mind. Rather, it is the seal of its divine origin and of its indestructibility.
Shall we have some quiet time together? <clears throat> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.